1: to the silver
0: screen welcome listeners to the fourth installment in our anime review series today we are reviewing metropolis and no not the metropolis we're not re-reviewing last week's episode this one is completely different but i'm not a different co-host this is still your co-host corbin
1: and i'm still the same co-host from last week this is alan
0: so what started with The Wolf Brigade and then we took a took a look at its live action remake, Elang The Wolf Brigade. The first was Japanese, the second was South Korean. And then we jumped to a 93 year old German film directed by Fritz Lang. I highly recommend you listen to that review because you will see some of the influences upon the film we're reviewing today. And that film is an anime based off of a live action film. So it's kind of a reverse of what we did the um, first two weeks. So this is Metropolis and it is done by the original manga. I should say by Osomo Tezuka. And I, I'm like, who is this? Well, if you've ever seen Astro Boy, then you'll have an idea of the animation style of this movie.
1: Yeah, I'm about to say Astro Boy, I, though I haven't seen it, I know of it. I think it used to play on Cartoon Network years mm. ago. Yes, it did. Um, the anime version did. Uh, I And I know that there was a uh, animated movie that came out a few years ago of Astro Boy, none of which I have seen, but I do know of Astro Boy. So when I saw that it was by the same guy who did Astro Boy, I was like, okay, I at least know what that is. I've seen it before, I at least know of its existence.
0: And I have been a big fan of Astro Boy since I was young. I do have Osama Tezuka's uh, original issue one manga, and I loved the cartoon when I was younger. So that made a lot more sense when I was watching this film. And our main character, Boy Kenichi, looks very similar to Astro Boy. And a lot of uh, Tezuka's drawings uh, have really come to life onto the screen Uh, i did find it fascinating though tezuka was not alive when they made this film
1: that's right Uh, and it's interesting too because the original anime or original manga was released in what 1949
0: yeah and the talent involved with this film we have reviewed their works before the writer for this movie is katsuhiro automoto who just so happened to wrote a, a little manga called akira he also yeah. wrote the film. Uh, he wrote Steamboy, Memories, part of uh, Robot Carnival. Mamoru Oshi worked on Robot Carnival as well. And um, also Rintaro directed this, who worked on Astro Boy. And Kimba the White Lion. I was surprised to see that this film received a PG-13 rating here in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and the more I thought about it, the more I guess it kind of fits in. Um, it's kind of borderline PG-13. Like it could be PG or it could be PG-13. Um, but I, uh, it from the rating, it sounds like it was more of the violence that happens, which is pretty mild anyways, is what pushed it over the line to be a PG-13.
0: We have reviewed three R-rated anime films. I believe your name was PG-13.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, actually, I think it was PG.
0: Well... I would probably say this of all the animes we have reviewed is probably the most family friendly. We started this mini review series on a very unfamily friendly note with uh, yeah. Jinro, <laughs> um, yeah. but would you agree and say like I would say despite the PG thirteen rating, this one is more accessible to more audiences.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. This one and your name are probably are definitely the two um, I guess most most family friendly anime that we have reviewed ever. Um, so far, but yes, this one is, I would consider to be in the camp of family friendly.
0: Now I hadn't, I mean, despite knowing who Osama Tezuka was and Astro boy was, I had completely forgotten about that for a long time. I had not heard of this film metropolis until I was at Dollar Tree and I picked up final fantasy, the spirits within, which also I, I want to say it came out around 2000, 2001 And on that disc, they recommended this film called Metropolis. And I watched the preview for it and I was just blown away by it. And usually I kind of have a rule that I don't buy movies unless I see them first, unless I'm at like the Dollar Tree. But I did pick this up on Blu-ray Steelbook from Mill Creek Entertainment. It is a gorgeous steelbook with an incredible slipcover. It is a Blu-ray DVD combo pack. And I wasn't quite sure the reaction I would get from Alan because I texted him a picture of it. And uh, I, I was pretty pleased with uh, his reaction.
1: Yeah. So I'm very jealous um, because I have been eyeing this movie for about two, three years at this point. It's, it's been on my Amazon wish list for a very long time. So, yeah, when when you sent me a picture of it, I was very jealous because it was a movie that I hadn't seen at the time yet, but I really wanted to be, and I really wanted to buy the Blu-ray, so I was very jealous.
0: Now, while Alan and I were doing some research on this film, I was expecting to find out that this movie would be very closely tied and inspired to Fritz Lang's Metropolis because they have, their, well, they have the exact same title. They both kind of talk about the Tower of Babel and uh kind of like futuristic robots and the workers and whatnot but when i came to find out that tezuka had never even seen the fritz lang movie he just saw a still image of the machine man and that gave him his idea for uh the main robot uh in this film and he also drew inspiration from superman which uh came out uh Not too long, came out in the 40s, I believe, a little before uh, Metropolis came out in uh, manga form. Um, Superman comes from the city of, and that's right, you guessed it, Metropolis. Apparently, he didn't know that. So there's all these similarities to Metropolis. Somehow, Tezuka didn't really know them. But we did learn that the filmmakers were inspired by Fritz Lang's movie.
1: That's right, yeah. And actually there the differences between the manga and the anime go a lot deeper than that. Now we won't discuss them here because they do get into spoilers um for the story. But yes, the Metropolis wasn't was not based off of the nineteen twenty-seven German film that we talked about last week. Um, but when it came to making the movie, that's when Rentaro looks and others who are on it were looking more at that 1927 picture and pulled a lot more from it. So if you read the manga, you'll probably be surprised um, about how much it has nothing to do with uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, whereas the anime um, has a lot more similarities and there are a ton of similarities between the two of them. But yes, the original source material is has nothing to do uh, except for the uh, machine man look um, to, has nothing to do with that 1927 German film.
0: The one last thing that I did find shocking is um uh, approached many years before they started this film. Uh, I mean, you have to understand listeners that Tezuka was a major, major influence on just manga in general, because he was putting this stuff out in the forties. And this was more so his passion, uh, kind of his passion side project. He originally received a doctorate in medicine. Wow. And then he decided to write comics and um, he became heavily influential on uh, creators today. He liked new ideas, new technology, but he didn't necessarily want his films to be adapted, um, certain ones of them. So Rentaro approached him and said, I want to make Metropolis into a movie. And he said, Don't do it. <laughs> and Rentaro said, Okay, I won't. But Once Tezuka did pass away, they really did um, felt like they had progressed far enough in their careers that they could properly honor Tezuka's memory and his animation and breathe some new life. Because at the point this movie came out, it had been over half a century um, since Metropolis had hit uh, shelves. So they really wanted to reintroduce this and they wanted to uh, really press the boundaries of... Uh, computer graphics and visual design is what I'm trying to say and uh, bring this to a whole new audience. So I find that really fascinating that they think that Tezuka, if he saw this movie today, he would hate it. I doubt he wouldn't hate it as much as the American CGI Boy movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, nevertheless, they're like, yeah, Tezuka would probably hate this movie and not be very happy about it. But Nevertheless, they're saying, we did this to honor his memory, and also we found his future, like, his uh, ideas of the future to be so fascinating and so, like, relevant to today. So, how has the legacy of this film fared? Like, what do critics and audiences think?
1: Right, so, uh, let's take a look. Uh, IMDb has it at a 7.2, which is, you know, pretty good. Um, the Metacritic score, or the Metascore of it is 75. Rotten Tomatoes has it at an 86% Critic score and 81% Audience score, and Letterboxd has it at a 3.6. So, from what I'm seeing, it's fairly well-loved all across the board. The IMDb scores are a little bit low compared to everything else, but... Critics and so far, audiences seem to really enjoy this movie. It's at least 70s or above everywhere. And Rotten Tomatoes has it as a certified fresh.
0: Now, how is that score compared to Jinro? Okay, I just checked. Jinro has a 7.4. So, Jinro is uh, a little bit uh, more respected, at least on IMDb. Um, Not on Rotten Tomatoes and Metascore,
1: though. Right, yeah. Now, I think we noted that the t- scores for those are p- pretty low. Yeah.
0: Now, as far as the box off it goes, it, well, it looks like it did pretty good, actually. Um, domestically, I didn't expect much here in the U.S., 722,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, international, 3.3 3 million for a total of about 4 million worldwide.
1: Now, in Japan, it got 75 million yen. mm I'm not entirely sure what that works out to in U.S. dollars, but the budget was about 15 million, which is about one million yen. So it looks like 75 million yen equates to at least in today's inflation, in today's currency for USD, about 695.8 thousand dollars. So I believe that's that's believe that's the correct number of zeros. One, two, three, not one,
0: even two, three. a million.
1: Not even a million, not even a million dollars, it looks like. Okay. Now, the $15 million to uh, equal to 1 million yen, it was, pr- my guess is probably when, uh it was probably converted back when it doesn't one. So, that's probably a bit different now.
0: Yeah, probably a little bit, but I guess I'm a little surprised it didn't get a little bit more of a budget, but... I guess they didn't really need much more of it. And they probably were smart not to give this movie too much considering it grossed around $4 million, So it definitely was a success. Um, and apparently Sony Pictures did distribute this here in the U.S. No surprise there. Yep. Sony is a Japanese company. and yep,
1: Sony TriStar.
0: Yeah, and opening weekend, which apparently opening weekend was January 25th, 2002. And you know this didn't have a broad release at all.
1: No, no. I'm sure it played at either specialty theaters or uh, film festivals Yeah,
0: primarily. I mean, opening weekend here in the US was $84,666. So let's say it's the very beginning of 2002, Alan. You have, maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're a young adult like you are now, and you are into anime and you see the trailer for this movie. Are you going to Do your best to seek out a cinema that's giving a showing of Metropolis. Will you go see it based upon the trailer?
1: If one is near me, absolutely yes. Um, Yeah, no, this. I think I thought the trailer was pretty good. At least showing you, you know, the visual style of what Metropolis is going to be, but not really diving too deep into the story. Now it is very 2001. Um, so you kind of get those early 2000s vibes off of it, but the trailer alone does pique my interest. So I probably would try to find a seat as close to me as I could, um, to see it back if I were able to watch it back in 2001.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I was so enamored by the trailer that I went out and dropped about 20 bucks on the Blu-ray steelbook. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen Metropolis and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film and then come back and click play. We'll be ready to talk about it.
1: All right. Here we go. A massive skyscraper known as the Ziggurat is finally unveiled to the public with its main beneficiary being Duke Red, the unofficial ruler of Metropolis who rules more with money than he does with political standing. During the festivities a, ro- a wayward robot is shot down by Rock, Duke Red's adopted son and the leader of the Mur- of the Marduk Party, which is a semi-political but mostly vigilante anti-robot group operating within the city. Private investigator uh I they I can do this Shun Sekuban and his nephew Kenichi have come to Metropolis to arrest Dr. Lofton who is a mad scientist and is wanted in many countries for organ trafficking. Unbeknownst to our main leads, Duke Red is in talks with the doctor to create a machine so like a human that can rule the cigarette throne and potentially rule the world. A robot that strikes a stunning resemblance to Duke Red's dead daughter. However, Rock overhears this and attempts to kill Dr. Lofton and the machine. Kenichi finds the machine named Tima, but they fall all the way down to zone three, while Shinakuban attempts to save the doctor um, who is dying and points to his red notebook with his last few breaths. Rock searches the rebel, but finds nothing of the robot that Dr. Lofton was building. He lead, he heads down to zone three, hopefully to find a lead, which he does. He opens fire on Kenichi and Tima and chases them all the way from zone three back up to zone one. Meanwhile, the president of Metropolis is aware of the impending revolution, Um, and is planning to use that to overthrow Duke Red and assume complete control of the city. However, the president's top commander turns on the president and ends up siding with Duke Red and ends up assassinating the president. The revolution ends up being a bust, however, as Duke Red, Rock, Tima, Kenichi, and Shu Sakuban all meet up. Rock is stripped of his position and disowned by his father, while Kenichi and Tima are taken captive by Duke Red. In another attempt to assassinate Tima, Rock tricks her out of the Ziggurat, posing as Kanichi. Shin- Shinsakuban saves her in the nick of time and a- and has her hack into the ziggurat to find Kanichi's whereabouts. The two head to the tower and meet up with Duke Red to explain to Tima uh, that the throne is all hers. Rock is also there under a disguise, and he shoots Tima, exposing her circuitry only to be shot himself. Tima, now knowing who she truly is, sits on the throne. Kenichi runs after her, ripping, away, ripping her away from the seat. Being attacked by robots from under the control of Tima, Rock attempts to save his father one last time by blowing up the ziggurat. Kenichi tries to save Tima, but is unsuccessful as, he, as she plunges into the collapsing structure. Kenichi searches the, rubble, searches the rubble, but only finds Tima's heart in the process. He tells his uncle that he'd rather stay stay here a while. And we see Shunzakuban fly away into, back to Japan as he watches his nephew walk among the robots. Then We then see a small red radio come back to life, briefly reciting Who Am I as the credits roll.
0: Good job, Alan. I don't envy you on this plot summary, because <laughs> watching this movie, you will realize there are a ton of characters... And a ton of different like political factions and whatnot. So much is going on. And I will say, for the most part, the movie does a good job of kind of juggling everything, balancing everything, trying to give everybody ample screen time and not make it seem like any characters getting the short shrift.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. There are a lot of moving parts here. And in a lot of ways... Uh, It kind of reminds me of Jinro by all these moving parts, all these different parties that are in like hoots with each other and trying to, you know, overthrow one or whatever. Um, Now, I wouldn't say it's nearly as confusing as Jinro because I know that we did note that while that movie, as I said, while I liked how convoluted it is, it is also very still convoluted. Um, I didn't find it to be nearly as bad this this time. I, I will I do want to come back to this a bit later because it is partially in my negatives, but mm-hmm. I do agree with you. there is at least ample screen time given to each of these parties. so we kind of get a good under or at least a decent understanding as to where their stance is with this current situation.
0: Yeah, they are introduced, I would say pretty well. They're all introduced in their own time. Things yep. are set up very well in Act one and explained properly. So they all play out, I would say, in a logical manner across the three acts. Right. And now, there are two prominent um, people in the film industry that were championing the, this film when it did come out. Wanted to throw that out here real quick. Um, one of those being James Cameron.
1: That's right. Yeah, I did see that he had a quote on the trailer.
0: Yeah. James Cameron called this the new milestone in anime and James Cameron Was also a champion of uh, Battle Angel Alita, and he did finally get to produce that movie. And uh, that was probably my favorite um, manga American adaption. Uh, Maybe we'll review that someday. But also, Roger Ebert described it as one of the best animated films I've ever seen. And he did say, if you have never seen anime, then this one's a good place to start. So, would you agree with that, Alan? Would you say, would you agree with Roger Ebert's statement there?
1: I would say that it's one of the places to start. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the place to start. Um, But yeah, I would pretty much agree with what he's saying. This is one of the few where it's not like going to be really weird for somebody who hasn't hasn't seen anime before. It feels not too out of the ordinary because a lot of anime to those who are not experienced can very easily feel out of the ordinary. This is not one of those. I feel like this one is pretty tame compared to some others.
0: I think one of the reasons this Roger Ebert did say that is also because particularly if you are a U.S. audience person, then you have mostly seen animated films from the likes of Disney, maybe some Warner Brothers stuff or Universal. I would say that Japanese animation or Japanimation, as it's come to be known, is a particularly unique because they will craft visual designs and set pieces that you just really don't see anywhere else.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I think that that kind of goes into what Roger Ebert is saying. And, I, and again, into what I'm saying is why this would be a good place to start, because you do get to see kind of I guess how in some ways familiar, but at the same time very different in terms of animation uh, when it comes to the Japanese style versus the American style, because the Japanese style is always gonna be, still be unique. And while there is some still for some fami- familiarity with this, um, I would say that the design and the, how this film looks uh, really makes it stand out because holy crap, this movie looks good.
0: Oh, it really does. And especially I highly recommend If you can watch it in high definition and watch it on
1: the biggest screen
0: possible, because this one of the other incredible things they're able to achieve. And it's really neat because Fritz Lang achieved this incredibly well. Also is scale, just Mm -hmm. massive, vast scales, making this world of metropolis seem truly ginormous. And as they go through the different zones, the usage of color is, is absolutely wonderful to see. Um, the robot designs are very unique. And of course, um, as we've noted, Jinro was interesting because that looked like very close to being like rotoscope live action, even though it wasn't. This, yeah. on the other hand, does look very cartoonish. And that's something you don't see a lot of in, I would say, more adult animes. Um, this, uh, style is very unique actually, uh, to anime. It's really its own thing. So I really did love the character designs. Um, did you get like a Ganondorf vibe off of, uh, Duke Red?
1: A little bit. Yeah. I, I do kind of see... Uh, a little bit of a similarity between Duke Red and Ganondorf. But Goo kind of talking about that same animation style, this is, and it kind of makes sense because the manga is based off of old Disney cartoons. It feels like one of those really old Disney cartoons, like back from the 20s and back from the 30s. I feel like this the, the way that these characters are designed feels like they kind of came out of something like that, which makes sense because the manga itself was kind of hearkening from that era.
0: And I really did like how this movie is combining a lot of futuristic, uh, concepts and technologies. But at the same time, people are walking around in trench coats and Mm -hmm. their cars look like they're very much designed from the, uh, early twenties and even the soundtrack as well. Uh, Um, the score very much, uh, the score was done by Toshiyuka Honda. And he is an internationally renowned saxophone player. And so he composed the whole score and the score does feel very much. I was shocked when I first heard the score. I wasn't expecting it. It does feel very 20s to me.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, they were trying to go for a New Orleans old jazz style. Yeah, and, Uh I think that again, just kind of helps make the film unique. In some ways it kind of reminds me of Cowboy Bebop because Bebop likes to use a lot of jazz in his mm. action scenes. Um, and this kind of does that same thing uh, where it just it likes to utilize a lot of jazz now the types of jazz are very different because cowboy bebop as the name suggests is going more for the style of bebop jazz whereas metropolis is going for more of a new orleans old time style but still the music in this film is great because it, it makes it once again just very unique because it's as long as well as it's going for a like an older traditional animation style like what Disney was doing back in the 40s. It's also going for a more older traditional uh, jazz composition. So there are a lot of older styles worked into this movie, which is kind of funny because it also kind of directly complements its futuristic elements to it. And
0: I was glad to see that the original Metropolis has its uh, footprint on this movie, but this movie still very much is its own thing. Um, And I I really do like the utilization of, um, what is her name in the movie? The girl, Tima? Oh, Tima. Tima, yeah. Tima is fascinating because she is the key to Metropolis. And so, I did see this movie before I saw Fritz Lang's uh, film. So, I was expecting, I had, it this did actually influence my expectations of Lang's film because I was expecting um, The Machine Man, Looks like a woman. Don't understand the naming in Lang's film. I thought that the Machine Man would, like in this movie, sit on the throne and rule Metropolis at the very end. But I do like how Tima is also a little girl, and she is kind of the key. Like the father is giving her the key to creating uh, this ultimate weapon. And I do like that this does differentiate itself from the other movie, because this one um, really does focus on political intrigue, aside from asking the big philosophical questions of what does it mean to be human?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And even the symbolic nature of the machine man Mm -hmm. and Tima, they're kind of opposites in a way, because in Metropolis, the machine man uh, goes for a more negative approach as to... Uh, its symbolic influence on the film, whereas Tima is very much a positive influence, and that's kind of as very much uh, communicated with the n- couple of shots where she has a very angelic presence to her. When we, f- when Kenichi and her fall down the fall down into Zone Three, uh, we do get to see this beam of light shining on top of her, and she's looking up into the sky. Uh, or the, these look up into the light, and then later on, when they're taken in by Atlas, she's on top of a roof listening to a radio, and a dove lands on her shoulder. And again, that same that similar shot of uh, this angelic presence that comes over her. So it, the op, the two are very different. They resemble very different things. Come with these two movies compared side by side.
0: Yeah, and they did switch some things around because. Duke red, he lost his daughter and it's not the inventor who lost his daughter instead. Right. Um, and, uh, there isn't any sort of, um, marital situation involved in this. And we noted in Lang's metropolis, it was the son's mom who was hell and she was kind of this lost muse. Um, the robot didn't transform. Um, we do kind of get this still kind of workers uprising, Um, I just appreciate more that we do get to explore this world and it's a little bit more fully realized because Lang was creating a world that didn't exist at the time. Whereas this is creating off of, um, a very realistic world and kind of blending those things together, uh, with the robots. But I really think you do come for this movie for the visuals I would say just how darn creative they are is a really a treat to discover, especially your first time watching it.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is definitely a movie that is complete eye candy from beginning to end. Because even though I've seen it now twice, I would love to go back just to look at you know its visuals. I think that's the my biggest positive I can give towards this movie is how good it looks. This movie looks fantastic.
0: Now, after I did watch this movie, I did tell Alan that I did see a lot of similarities between this and Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. And I guarantee Villeneuve pays homage to one scene in particular. And that is when the uncle in this movie, the detective, when um, he gets shot and um, it's snowing outside. And then he lays down on the steps, just like when Detective K also gets shot and lays down on the steps there towards the end of the movie. I'm like, wait a minute. This is yep. a very similar recreation. And then, of course, Blade Runner and this movie are constantly asking the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have memories? And does that matter if your memories are real or not? So even though this movie, um I would say, probably didn't have a very big footprint here in the U.S., I would say internationally, just like. Fritz Lang's movie, which was a German film. Those films like have very much uh, influenced international filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is also one where it's looking at a love angle too, because you have the la- the relationship between Kenichi and Tima, um, where Kenichi shows her a lot of compassion. And we get to the end of the movie where Duke Red is trying to like you know, convince her to sit on the throne because then he would do what he always wanted her to do. He would do what he essentially commanded her to be built to do. Um, But she initially refuses because she has grown to love Kedichi in a way. And then you've also got that same kind of relationship, but in a different sense with Duke Red and also with Rock because Rock has this... like almost this duty he feels to protect protect his father against the machines, right? And it even goes to the point where it it pushes him so far that he he is the one, Rock is the one who destroys the ziggurat because he's trying to save his dad and ends up killing him and his dad in the process along with the ziggurat to not be taken away and taken down and killed by these robots. There's an interesting love angle that this movie takes with all this.
0: And that is one thing that Tezuko always wanted with his anime was more of a positive outlook on the future and that um, kind of like robots like and that's something I liked how they described the society as kind of this like overdeveloped society where they have pushed themselves too far into seeming perfection and it ultimately causes all of these issues. I do love the juxtaposition at the very end of total destruction of the city which i'm telling you the japanese know how to animate destruction go watch uh akira oh the yeah destruction in the beginning of that movie oh it's so good and the scale is great as well but like the sheer destruction of the city and then out of that comes like this very like kind of like blossoming positivity where it seems like now everything is all right with the world now that all of these really oppressive hierarchies have been uh, shut down Um, and i do love how the characters continually rise through like the different zones and like i said the the scale and how these characters travel through the movie but just that juxtaposition there at the end portrays tezuka's optimistic future
1: absolutely yeah and i love how uh you just kind of just mentioned this uh this movie has Zones, right? And so at one point in the movie, uh, is when the uncle is going looking for his nephew, he realizes that, oh, there's not just one zone underneath, no, there are three. Um, and it gets so far down there, at zone three, it's pretty much only robots at that point, it's it's sewage, it's really the only thing it's used for. So it kind of just goes to show that even though this city is called Metropolis and it's again, very similar to how the original 1927 movie is working as well, there is an underbelly to the city. And now while in the original G- German 1927 movie, the underground is used for something a bit different, um, this one is using it more as, well, it isn't all positive, right? There is this under there is this underbelly that's going to uprise at some point uh, to hopefully take control of the city, which we find out later. It was all, it was all planned out. They knew, the government knew that this was going to happen and they trapped them instead. Um, so that re, the revolutions are playing a very small part of the story, whereas in the 1927 version, it takes up the entire third act. So it, it is kind of interesting to see this, like this warring dichotomy again between these two halves of the city, the one that's up on top, living life uh, with... Uh, almost like a surplus uh, luxury, I guess you could say. And then you got the basement, which is kind of all the dirty laundry, the thing that holds up the city in a lot of ways.
0: They are bringing some of those like Eastern kind of still communist ideas, mm-hmm. revolutionary ideas, uh, you know, the Bolshevik revolution. They are bringing that here into it as well. Yeah. Um, I do say this movie also has some more Eastern um, influences than... The German film, because a number of times they mention the Tower of Babel, but they don't ascribe that to the biblical story. They mention how the gods were angry. And also another, uh, tenant in like kind of an Eastern religion mindset is kind of like the cycle of life and like death and rebirth. And so we can see that throughout this movie, how everything is very much dying and decaying, and has a very much glistening facade, but in the end, it all comes crashing down, and that's in order for everything to be kind of like reborn and essentially like repurposed into something better.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I would say that that's probably the biggest differentiate. Dif- the thing, the biggest difference between these two is, uh, I guess, they're the cultures that they spawn from, obviously, because 1927 Metropolis is very German. And and as I mentioned, it kind of came from a place of pain and a place of, uh, what's the word, oppression in some ways. And this one is very different because this one is more hearkening on those, like you said, Eastern ideas. Uh, So it's kind of interesting to see how, in some ways, a very similar idea is put out in two completely different ways when you look at how these two movies handle, uh, handle this.
0: Now, Alan, there is original Japanese uh, audio for this film, but there's also an English dub as well. Uh, which version did you watch for this
1: recording? So I was only able to watch the English dub. Uh, I try to always watch the Japanese if I can. Um, however, partially because... Uh, the English dub is not always the greatest. Um, I'm not usually too big of a stickler on that, but I try to go for the Japanese dub. However, I will say that the English dub for this movie is quite good. Um, most of the time, as I've mentioned in podcasts past, I haven't been too positive completely on all of the English dubs for the anime that we've watched, if I've been able to see it in that English dub. This one's a bit of an, of an exception. This one I feel is, a, is one of the best uh, English dubs for anime that I've seen. I think it's very, very well done. Comparatively speaking to other English dubs of anime that exist.
0: I absolutely agree. I have now watched both. I've watched it with both versions all the way through English and Japanese. And my preference is actually the English voice acting. Um, It's very well done. They all very much um, stand out. The Japanese is fine, but there's not much to make the characters um, unique. And I've heard a lot of Japanese voice acting, and this is not some of the best. Um, it's also very quiet, and it does make it very hard to engage with the characters. So if you can listen to it in English, I would say um, it, English is very well done. I did learn that um, the Kanichi voice actor, the Japanese um, young man, had never done voice acting before. This was really? his first time. So, he was an amateur, which I think does lend to uh, lend to some of the complaints I just had about that.
1: Right, right. And I did notice that the voice actor of Spike from uh, Cowboy Bebop is also in this movie. He, although he has a very pretty minor role, um, he plays like the uh, assistant to the president. But he is in this movie. I noticed it.
0: It was fascinating because I've only watched Cowboy Bebop in Japanese, so I Ah. could not recognize his voice, but um, the voice actor is very famous. He's done a lot, so I've heard him before. He's fantastic.
1: Yeah, Stephen Blum. So I do kind of want to talk about uh, Duke Red for a second because I find his character design to be very fascinating Yes. (laughs) Yes <laughs> because he is designed to be more like a hawk or an eagle. Yeah. Right. Looks and like now bird. hawks and eagles and birds of the sort are usually used to represent some kind of or have been used to represent a government political power. America's uh like national bird, bird <laughs> is the American eagle. Yeah. Um kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum mm-hmm. the Nazi Party have used an eagle for their logo for the Reich um so it's like not uncommon to see like a, a political party or a government to use like uh, a, a bird or an eagle of some kind to for their logo to represent some kind of power so it's interesting to see that uh, in this movie. Uh, for the actual villain of the story, who actually is, as we are told, is pretty much the ruler of uh, Metropolis, even though he isn't exactly the president, is designed such outwardly like a naked like eagle.
0: His character design is definitely the most striking of all of them, I would say, because he doesn't look right. He's got a giant nose, which yep. is representative of a beak, and his hair is all fluffed up like a cockatoo or something. Yep. And yeah, he is definitely um, designed, as you said, to resemble a very powerful bird, very much kind of like an eagle of some sort. And kind of how he also has made his nest, you could say, uh, above the city, similar to how a bird would. And he is always uh, watching and he ultimately does swoop down on everybody and take control through a coup. We do witness right. a coup in this film. And he is uh, kind of playing everyone, it seems like. So his character's design is, it's really out there. It doesn't feel like it quite fits, but at the same time, I like the uniqueness of it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It, It is interesting to see, but it is also kind of in the face a little bit um because he looks a little bit i would say too much like a bird <laughs> mm-hmm. but but yeah i I do, I do think that his character design is fascinating and there is of course a like a power struggle angle on this whole thing similar to 1927 metropolis because you do have this ziggurat which we are told later on that back in the time of the tower of babel uh, people in high standing power would build towers like this just to pretty much just to say I'm in control, right? And so, at the very the first thing that we see is the Ziggurat in this movie. You do get to get this sense of Duke Red, especially when he's introduced, and he's told that, "Oh, yeah, well, I'm not exactly in power, but you know, everyone knows that I'm the one who runs the show." You get this sense really early on that Duke Red is the like the guy who's running the show here. Um, uh, they try to introduce the president as like kind of the uh, bad guy, but he's taken out there towards the end. Um, so it, they kind of try to play with some kind of power struggle between the two of them, but it really isn't fleshed out very well. Um, but you do, again, you do get this really good sense of Duke Red is the main bad guy. He is the one who's trying to control everything. He's the one who is the most powerful in the city.
0: Yeah, I did find that surprising on my first watching that Duke Red, despite Being the creator and master of the ziggurat, you would think he would be in charge of Metropolis, but he's not. There is a president. He's not the president. He will eventually just have a hostile takeover and declare martial law. Right. But nevertheless, that did surprise me. The one thing that I really liked that they had changed from the german version is this this ziggurat tower babel whatever you want to call it has a bit more of a function and a purpose instead of just being a more symbolic uh high tower right. uh, it's actually right. um a weapon and he created this ziggurat to have Tima sit on the throne and of uh, ultimately just take over the universe with it and right. we see a fraction of the power used without Tima. when they what are they doing they're like harnessing irradiation uh from yeah. the sun or something and yeah it's all a part it's of essentially their an EMP. okay yeah yeah it's like an emp in order to cause all of the machines in metropolis to go haywire mm-hmm. and cause people to turn against the robots And um, that gives uh, Duke Red the perfect uh, option to have people turn to him. I really like that idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's also kind of ironic, too, because Duke Red isn't ever fully in charge of the story. Um, really at any time, because when he does assume control, finally, is when he captures Tima and then tries to sit her on top of the throne. And then Mm -hmm. Tima very quickly kind of just takes over the whole situation. He's very, he's in power for very little, uh, very few moments of the movie, which I find just kind of be ironic because his character is more symbolic and is trying to be in control of everything. But in reality, when the whole movie plays out, he's never really in control, only for a very brief period of time. So we have talked
0: about how invested we are in the visuals of the film, but I got to say I'm not necessarily that invested in the characters or their plight.
1: Oh, no, I absolutely agree with you. And this (laughs) is probably my biggest negative for this movie is there really isn't a character that changes in the story. Maybe Tima, maybe Duke Red that's really about it. There are, the characters in the story don't really go through a whole lot of change. The character of uh, of Kenichi, while he's kind of, I guess, the quote-unquote main character of the story, it's not like he comes in with a new ideal and then leaves with a completely different point of view of life. There really isn't that struggle that they go through with this character at all. So it's it's weird to see that there really isn't, I guess that character that, you know, goes through all the change here.
0: Yeah, there's really like not much of a character arc per se. Like I said, it's more so about kind of a futuristic world with political intrigue and how society has kind of uh, corrupted itself, overrun itself through power and machines and what that might look like. Right, But this movie is weird because this movie, the storytellers seem to really struggle to pick a character and just stick with that character and have that be our character we follow. We're really juggling uh, at least three different storylines, probably maybe four different storylines. And the movie does try and give us room and time with all of them, but there's no character arc. I'd, I'd probably say the most fascinating character uh, is probably Rock because he wants yeah. to be accepted by his father, but his father says, I'm not your father. I adopted you. And um, they're in charge of the Marduk party, which basically destroys robots that run amok. And he is wanting his father to have all the glory and honor and sit on the throne. And ultimately he gets shot for it. And yep. his father runs around his dead corpse just to make sure Tima's okay. Yep. It's really his character arc is really tragic and really fascinating because he's also just so evil and will just murder people in cold blood without a second thought. Um, plus his character design is kind of funky. He looks like a funny little boy with a red sweater and giant boots and sunglasses, yep. Yep. suspenders. <laughs> but all of that said, I think you and I are on the same page here is that they're trying to really craft an Epic story, but it to me it feels like they just bite off more than they can chew.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And partially with the characters, but I think also partially with how the story is told because there are, for a, a good chunk of the movie, it just feels really choppy to me mm-hmm, because yeah. they kind of switch back and forth and back and forth the different scenes. Um, and it makes the movie feel like it just needs to be way longer than it actually is. I think this is what, like an hour and 45 minutes? Right. Yeah, it needs to be more like three hours because there's enough here, I feel, that it could make a three hour epic and get away with it and still be as interesting as it is now, even it maybe even more so. Um, the problem is, I I think that, like you said, I think that they kind of bite off more than they can chew. I think that they chose to pick more things that they thought were unnecessary, but when you really put it down and shave it down to an hour, 45 minute feature length movie, some of those things, uh, need more explanation, need more time to develop than what they actually are able to give. So that kind of pulls me out is it just feels kind of choppy. Nothing really sticks for a lot of it, at least.
0: I don't know how you necessarily felt about the pacing. I do agree that the editing is, I think in some ways, the story for what they're doing, they did a good job of trying to edit it in such a way as to bring us back to certain characters. That way we don't forget about them too quickly or uh, yeah, they try and weave things in and out. But the pacing of this movie, even though it is 107 minutes long and that is including credits, this feels like a two-and-a-half-hour movie to me just because of the story they're trying to tell. And I think there's a clear delineation in this movie, um, and it's uh, before the uprising, the people's uprising, and then after the uprising when Duke Red has taken over. And to me, that it just feels like there's this gap that we're missing mm-hmm. in characters. And the other thing that I'm always kind of feeling a little bit lost with this movie is characters are constantly either being shot, abducted, lost, separated. It gives me a complete sense of confusion. I don't really know constantly who's alive, where people are even at in the city, what their necessary goals are, because the original goal was to find this kind of mad scientist who created Tima, but then he dies. And then the uncle and nephew get separated. And they're still with the robot, and then they join this revolution briefly. We don't, that is so brief, the whole uprising
1: thing. Yeah, and then that's squashed. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's completely, that part is completely underplayed.
0: Yeah, and then that's quickly squashed, and then they kind of have this like epic showdown on this on these giant like courthouse steps or something in, in the snow. I, I like that scene. It looks great, Mm -hmm. but like every single character like converges there and then they're all separated again. And I don't know. It just, it really gets to be pretty dense there.
1: Yeah. And I guess I, I don't necessarily have a problem um, with, I guess the pacing per se, I thought that it moved along pretty pretty nicely, although uh, I do agree with you, there are some pretty, there are some issues with it. I think my problem is that if it were longer, if it were, th- like I said, three hours long and they took all these elements and were able to flesh them out correctly, um, would they have also been able to go deeper with this idea? Because I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't think this movie is n- really all that deep. No. Um, <laughs> it's got some really interesting ideas to it, but they don't really dig down into it. And I think part of that is because uh, they don't aren't given enough time to do a lot of the things they want to do.
0: I just I, all I'm saying is that the first time I watched this movie, I did start it later at night. It wasn't terribly late, but I did doze in the third act towards the end um, because I was really struggling to, I was interested in the story. I guess this movie just doesn't quite clearly lay out its end goal. I think it is there, but I'm so confused on when is it going to be achieved? How is it going to be achieved? There's just so much struggle and strife going on between the characters and there's not a ton of character moments and, um, I'm not quite sure what anybody's end game is except for Tima, who is just confused on whether she's human or whether she's a robot because she's constantly questioning that. But on this viewing, I did actually find myself dozing a little bit during the second act because I think, like I'm saying, this movie is trying to be this really big Dr. Zhivago, Blade Runner 2049, Lawrence of Arabia epic telling just like this really epic story story. But I, it just can't stick with seemingly stick with one character and really invest me in them,
1: right? No, I, I agree with you. If they had, if maybe, uh, for example, Kenichi came in with a resentment towards robots and was able to rectify that by the end because he ends up kind of liking uh, Tima. I mean, then we would at least have something to work off of, um, where it gets to a point where you could maybe explore like, oh, well, what if Tima is so lifelike, you know, what if, what if that was a thing? You could explore love in that kind of an angle where it is love with a robot that isn't actually a human. Like, I think that there are some things that you could do with this idea with Tima being a robot, but she's unknowing. And there were, and really the characters around here are also unknowingly, uh, don't know that she's a robot. So I think that there's a lot that you could do there, but this movie also tries to focus on other things like Duke Red, uh, who his political uh, agenda is, or his, Plan to overthrow the president um, is kind of shrouded in mystery because they don't ever really explain that. When he does overthrow the president, uh, it kind of almost comes out of left field. Um, it wasn't really properly set up. It's a, it's really cool image to see the uh, the Ziggurat uh, behind the behind the president as he falls dead on the on the railing, mm-hmm. but it just feels like that was part part of it that just wasn't really set up hardly at all for his character. So
0: we've said that we have struggled to really latch onto these characters. Does that mean there was any time throughout this movie that you found your focus drifting or did you ever find yourself not quite as engaged as maybe you thought you would be?
1: I would say definitely, would um let's see, what scene was it? The, it's kind of like right in between, right in the middle of the second act. I think that was where most of my focus was starting to drift. I think I was mostly engaged continually because of the visuals of the movie. The visuals were the things that always kept me engaged. I wanted to see more. It's very cyberpunk-esque with its visuals, and I love that kind of stuff. So I think that's what kept me engaged most of the time. If the characters weren't interesting, at least what I was seeing was interesting. So very possible that on repeat viewings, this would be not nearly as engaging as it would be right now.
0: I'm just like kind of frustrated with myself because I made it to the third act, my first viewing, and I started to doze then and I did miss a little bit of it. And then here on my second viewing, I, okay, I'm not old. I'm not like this old geezer. I can't (laughs) sit through an hour and 45 minute movie, but nevertheless, I'm just saying, and I was um, watching it in. Japanese with the subtitles. And like I said, the Japanese vocal performances weren't uh, my cup of tea. They really didn't pull me in as much as the English performances did for me. So I think that was a part of the reason as well. But I was shocked because, yeah, during the second act, I found myself dozing because in some ways this also is a very quiet film. It is also trying to be in some ways a detective story where they're trying to run through these different zones and catch on to these different characters and whatnot. So um, although I do love the visuals and I think audiences should stay for the visuals, I think there is some just holes to this story that oh, maybe yeah. if they filled them in more, I would say just the biggest, the biggest one is after the revolution, the revolution starts and then it like cuts the black. And then we come back and it's, it's like snowing all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of time has passed and all of these characters are converging and I'm always struggling to know who has been reunited, who has been separated, who's dead and who uh, has come back together. So once they all converge on those sneps, steps in the snow, I'm like, what is, what is going on?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. There are, there are some definite, uh, I guess, plot holes that are here where things just kind of jump forward in time. Like you said, from the, re- the start of the revolution to when they all meet up on the steps, it's like a, it jumps forward like a couple of weeks um, or months. And all of a sudden, all the characters are here. And then the next thing we know, we're the rock bottom part of the story where Tima and uh, Kenichi are, are taken by Duke Red. And he's now in complete control at that time. So yeah, no, this, I would say that that the weakest story, the weakest point of this movie is definitely it's storytelling, how it tells a story. I don't think that it completely lives up or I I don't think that it completely does what it is trying to set out to do.
0: And I guess I was shocked because when I first saw the movie, I thought that was going to be the climax of the film. I I mean, all the characters have converged and they're all about to shoot each other or die. I mean, uh, the uncle's, the uncle gets shot. Kenichi gets shot or, or beat up or something. And I thought rock was going to die. Surprise. No, it's not the end at all.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: Well, Alan, I'm very curious. What is your rating and recommendation for Metropolis?
1: Metropolis is by far one of the best looking anime that I've seen, especially in a long while. Uh, It it looks good. It sounds good, has a great soundtrack. intriguing story to a point and that's kind of where my negatives start to set in is while this movie looks great and i could watch it for its visuals all day uh it's that's only you know part of what makes a movie you also have the story that goes along with it and while it is still a an intriguing story at heart it does suffer from some pretty uh i would say miss pretty big pieces that are missing here. Namely, we don't have a character that goes through any kind of significant change. There are characters here that do go through a small change like Lima or Duke Red, or maybe even Rock, for example, but their screen time is not really all that prevalent uh, at, with the exception of, of Tima, but even then, there really isn't a whole lot there. And this movie tries, I feel like this movie wants to go deeper, but due to its runtime, it it doesn't. It it could be three hours long, and I feel like that would be a more significant and better runtime for the story. So at the end of the day, while I do still want to buy this on Blu-ray, it is unfortunately fly with the storytelling to a point where uh, it's going to get a significantly lower score. It feels like it's trying to hearken on some Cowboy Bebop or... Uh, some Blade Runner-like themes and visuals, but that story, again, just isn't there. So, anyways, at the end of the day, I'm going to go for a 6 out of 10. I'm still going to give it a recommend. Um, I think it's definitely worth the time looking at it because it's, again, really, really gorgeous, but it does come with some pretty significant flaws in my eyes.
0: Metropolis is a unique anime film that brings in ideas from Fritz Lang's original movie, Astro Boy and Akira. Utilizing groundbreaking visual effects, Metropolis is the most gorgeous anime I've seen so far. Mixing in political intrigue with the now age-old question of can robots have emotions, Metropolis is a spectacle to behold. The writing and directing are both incredibly solid, and both men live up to their name. I will say, at times the story of Metropolis can bite off a bit more than it can chew, with the amount of characters and how they weave in and out of the story. Somehow, despite the reasonable runtime, I do feel Metropolis gets a bit long in the tooth. But Metropolis absolutely gets my endorsement. Roger Ebert said, if you've never experienced anime, then this is the place to start. Thought-provoking and a sheer feast for the eyes, Metropolis is incredible. Metropolis receives seven stars out of 10 with a solid recommend.
1: You know, I came pretty close to giving it a seven uh i think my original score was an eight Mm -hmm. when i first watched it and then i watched it again and i was like well (laughs) it went down to a seven and then after i was when i was formulating my notes and i was writing down uh like getting everything organized and that's when i was like "Mm." Mm -hmm. yeah and then it went to a six so i'm i'm kind of i guess in between a six and a seven but uh, i think a six of captures my thoughts better than a seven would
0: i was shocked i will say that you did give it a six i was expecting more of a seven but at the same time i'd probably say i was deliberating between a seven and an eight because mm-hmm. just eight on the on the reason for visually what they were able to achieve and how this is still a unique story and i think it is cool that they're taking this super old German film and kind of bringing in their Eastern ideas and animation and making something new out of it. I find all of that to be really, really cool. They're doing that. But at the same time, I am shocked because my first viewing was February 28th. My first viewing granted it was later at night and I did doze for a tiny bit of it. You know what I originally gave this movie? Oh, what? I was so I, like I said, these I can't underplay these visuals, listeners. If you've made it this far and you haven't watched the movie, please go watch it, and per, especially in high definition if you can't. I was just so blown mm-hmm. away by just how unique this world looked. It was just so incredible. I gave it a nine out of ten.
1: Oh, my first viewing, wow. I was
0: so blown away by everything in here, and that's why I was shocked when I rewatched the movie with my yeah. SSG goggles. And I'm like, this is a seven. This is. This is not a superb film and any... This really isn't superb, which is a nine. A superb is nearly perfection. I'm like, no, not at all. This movie is a solid seven, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a seven, and that's still good, I would say. It's still a good movie.
1: Yeah, and this actually makes me want to go and read the manga. Oh, me too. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, if this movie is as interesting and as good-looking as it is here, I would assume the manga to be uh, from the sounds of it, similar, if not better. So, and given that it's probably given that it's longer and fleshed out with however many pages it is, intrigues me to see what else that story had in it.
0: So I still have to ask this. Is this going to be a pickup or pass? And are you gonna wait till hopefully maybe that price comes down? I mean, it's 20 bucks for the mm-hmm. steel book you going to wait for a cheaper option or is this a movie you're going to get to eventually? Or are you going to go get it after this review?
1: I'll get it. I, probably not after this review, but I'll, I will look heavily into getting it um, as soon as I can.
0: So after watching Metropolis, what other movies or TV shows would you recommend our listeners check out?
1: I, I mentioned Cowboy Bebop, so definitely go check out Cowboy Bebop because I, I think that some of the visuals between the two of them and that jazzy tune mm-hmm. um, score, that jazzy composition definitely feels kind of like Bebop. Ghost in the Show Innocence, it, I got a lot of Ghost in the Show Innocence vibes off of this, um, especially with a lot of the city scenes. So I would say definitely check out Ghost in the Show Innocence because I know we reviewed that in the past. Uh, I think we had two very different Uh, thoughts on it when we finish that review. But I would say definitely check out that one. And you could definitely look at the original Ghost in the Shell as well. And my last one is also Jinro. We did review that one as well. Uh, That one, I also got some vibes as well from the story, although not as much as Bebop and Ghost in the Shell too.
0: I would recommend you check out Astro Boy. Clearly, there's going to be visual crossover because they are from the same creator, I really enjoyed that uh, Astro Boy anime TV show and the manga is good too. I also recommend iRobot. A lot of iRobot feelings here with this movie with some of the intrigue and uh, robots against humans and whatnot. Now, this movie never received any kind of sequel, but there was a final piece in the loosely related manga trilogy. It is It began with Lost World, and then it was Metropolis, and then it concluded with Next World. Uh, Sounds fascinating to me. I would love to own and read all three. Uh, Next World has not been adapted into anything. I don't think Lost World has either, but I'd like to check them out. Yeah, definitely. Now, the question after the show, listeners, would you rather watch the 1927 Metropolis or the 2001 Metropolis? Ooh, or are they just too different? That is actually a really good question. I'm curious to know what listeners think because there are there are crossover. We talked about the crossover, but at the same time, they're both very different. And well, I mean, <laughs> for Pete's sake, one is a black and white silent movie and the other one is a color movie, but their ideas are, are also different as well. So listeners, make sure to comment that below, no matter where you're at, whether you're listening over on YouTube, Podbean, iTunes, um, even if you're on our official website and you're listening over there, make sure to leave a comment because we'll see it. And I'm very curious to know what you'll think of this. And you know what? I'm guessing a lot of our listeners hadn't heard of these past four movies we just reviewed. I know some very hardcore film fans probably will have. Even I wasn't uh, had not really heard of Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, and I have just within this year come to know about metropolis so Mm -hmm. i'm thinking a lot of people haven't heard of it so i'm hoping if this is your first time that um you have been very you know excited and pleased to open up your horizons to different foreign films that we have reviewed over here we don't want to review like just blockbusters or just a certain type of movie but Silver Screen Guide, we're always trying to expand your horizons when it comes to different types of cinema from different parts of the world with different thoughts and designs. So I've been very, very pleased with these past four reviews. They have done a lot for me as well as a film enthusiast myself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And now that I've been able to sit down and watch at least two of these finally um, all the way through, that being these two Metropolis movies, uh, it's it's been really interesting to see, I guess, somewhat of like with Jinro, the live action adaptation of an anime, and then also that other way around, where anime takes some ideas from something, um, from I, I guess in this case it's from two sources and kind of takes them and pushes them together, and um, bringing in more Eastern ideas. So yeah, these have been these two re- these reviews have been very interesting to wa- look at conceptually um, and comparing you know, the diff- different, I guess, versions of the same story or different variations of the same story.
0: Well, listeners, that wraps it up for our live action anime movie review series. We are not returning to Christopher Nolan next week. Not quite yet. We will, we will be returning with Christopher Nolan on July 6th with The Dark Knight Rises. And that will lead us straight into his brand new film Tenet, which does release in July as well. And that will be the end so far of the Christopher Nolan series. But in the meantime, we are going to be starting a new movie review series. Next week, we are going to start reviewing the Jason Bourne films. So as I said, we are going to be reviewing the original trilogy, and then we are going to review the rest of Christopher Nolan's films, and then we will come back and finish up the Jason Bourne films. But it's that original trilogy a lot of people think of as the original films so you're not going to want to miss the next week's episode we are going to be starting with the first movie the born identity the 2002 matt damon action film we are not going to be reviewing the born identity 1988 tv mini series i'm very excited alan is very excited as well to bring you these reviews alan thanks for joining me sure thing so listeners we will see you next week with the born identity. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission
1: from Silver Screen Guide. And Letterboxd has it at a... Forgot to look this up beforehand. I thought I was ready. Then I totally forgot every time. <laughs> 3.6. So from what I'm seeing, it's in U.S. current, in, US, in the U.S. dollar conversion. That's 1 million yen. So at 75 million, where'd you go? <laughs> Dang it. Again with this. You're frozen. Hello? Hello? Yeah, you just froze. Uh, I think Skype crashed. Great. (laughs) Every time. So
0: you were converting Uh the numbers?